Okay, my name is Lisa McCormick. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is when the Magi visit the Messiah. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. Happy 2024, Amago. Good to see all your lovely faces. Um, this is one of my favorite times of the year. I'm a, a sucker for symbolism, including fresh starts and the like. So, uh, so this is a time that I usually really enjoy. Um, I'm going to ask a question uh, to start off. What we just heard is the only in, uh, account of the wise men, the magi, the three kings. There weren't really three, but whatever label you've heard. This is the only account of it in scripture. So I just want, real quick, uh, anybody who has anything, what has your understanding historically been about these visitors, the, the magi, the wise men? What have you been taught? What have you heard? Nothing is fine to you, but uh, what have you heard about, about these particular people? They bought, brought gifts of frankincense and myrrh. You're so cute. Ken's stalking all of us. <laughs> <laughs> we li- some some stalking is okay. Okay, I can, I can see where you would have heard that. So he heard that the the wise men were sent to find Jesus so that Herod could have him killed. That's not why they went. It's and and the story will actually show they don't go back to the king because they realize he has malicious intent. 
So he was trying to use them in that way, but God came to them in a dream and they paid attention. And so they took a super long way back so that they didn't have to cut back through Jerusalem is what we think happened. Yep, so some traditions have three names for the kings. Uh, I don't know what they are. They were given way later in history. We know for sure there weren't just three, um, but it's kind of the way it's been solidified in Christian thinking. Um, does anybody know the three names? Balthazar, I think, is one of them, but I can't remember. Yeah, not historically sound, but definitely traditionally something that, that you'll see in a lot of churches. <laughs> Joe was not one of them. Yeah. Yep. Yep, and we'll talk about that. So in a nativity set, it's, factually inaccurate to have the three wise men at the uh, manger and we'll get into some of that but they actually came sometime after Jesus was born and I'll get into a little bit of the history here in a little bit yeah Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar one more time one at a time Caspar, Caspar, Melchior, Melchior, and Balthazar I got one out of three so Anybody else? Yeah. They followed a star. Mm -hmm. Yep. And a lot of times that's why we see a single star in like nativity graphics. Um, it's to represent the star that, again, time-wise doesn't work, but yes, it's part of the symbolism. Anybody else? Yes. <clears throat> so these were all most likely wealthy uh, folks, and I'll get into a little bit more of historically who they were, but the gifts that they brought were very valuable in the time, not just the gold, but the two, um, the two other items that were brought were also um, not inexpensive uh, offerings to bring. All right, so I am going to read. Uh, this is something that we put together, uh, I think, 2018 during Advent. <coughs> It was a reading we did to represent kind of the perspective of different people who uh, were part of Jesus' birth story. So I'm going to read that to you now. I am one of the devoted, those among my people whose lives are given entirely to the study of all things body and soul. As we believe that existence is housed both physically and spiritually within each individual. We immerse ourselves in learning the human body, its ailments and diseases, the effects of plants and chemicals on it, its abilities and limitations. We tirelessly study the scriptures, all of the scriptures, the myths and legends and stories we've used from the beginning and others have used to understand how we came to be, our relationship to all that is, and our place within the mind of God. We learn to conduct rituals of water and fire for our communities to commune with our maker. We seek to understand the subconscious mind through dreams and visions, building on ancient symbols to divide the meanings that all, 
I'm sorry, to divine the meanings of all that comes to us when we are separated from control over our minds through sleep. As we look to the stars, the movements of planets and cosmos and all the bodies of the skies, we seek to understand and, and gain knowledge of how the energies of the heavens are guiding the events of our world. It was just such stargazing that inspired several of my order to set out on a journey west. Love and war drew nearer in the sky as all the symbols of power aligned within one of our constellations. Rarely does a sign so potent, so clear, or so significant make itself known. A ruler has come to earth. A man of power has been born. And not just a man, but one imbued with the very essence of the divine. His life will end in conflict and warring enemies. He will die at the hands of these enemies to return to the deity of which he has come. The star's location was painstakingly mapped. The baby was in the land of the Hebrews. A new king of the Jews had come. Familiar with the stories of Abraham and the growth of the nation of his descendants, we'd always understood there was more power within this small group than had been seen in its modest national history. We took time to properly prepare, loading the animals with provisions, tents, and gifts, gold as a tribute to a king, frankincense to offer in worship to a deity, and myrrh to be used in preparing the dead. Once all was ready, our caravan began its trek, and days are passing in relative quiet. The evenings in readings, study, prayer, and sometimes the excited speculation about the child waiting at our destination. Keeping the full message of the stars close to our hearts is necessary, for we are coming to worship a king and to prepare a child and his mother for his death. And we are getting close now. Our journey is nearly over. Soon we will arrange to meet with the current king, a man called Herod, with a nasty reputation and a disregard for the tenets of his faith. Once we know the exact location of the babe, we will present our gifts. The excitement is growing rapidly, moving like a charge throughout our group. What is about to happen will never again transpire in our lifetimes. And this child is a harbinger of certain change far beyond as human years may come to reflect. It won't be long now before the long wait is finally over and deep in my soul reverberates the power of the one I am soon to meet. This would have been the perspective of the people who came to view the king. They weren't part of the Jewish history. They weren't part of the Hebrew people. They would have known that they were small and, and really inconsequential as far as the powers that be. But because of the diaspora, the time when the Jews were scattered throughout the area by the Assyrians, they would have been known. Um, they cause a lot of noise for how small they are. And so the, the idea that we understand of these wise men is that they studied any scriptures that were out there, any profound poets, any writings that, that were available to them. They were true universalists in that they sought to understand the divine anywhere they could. And when they found a sign of the divine, they responded to it. They participated in it in the best ways that they could without overreaching. Um, so factually, um, this is the part where for some of you I get boring. Um, just a few things that we can know for sure in as much as we can about something that happened 2,000 years ago. Um, the Magi 
which is one of the words that we use, the Magi. Um, they were a cast of high-ranking advisors in regions all throughout what we know as Persia. So they were known by anybody in the area. They were well-respected. They typically were somewhat wealthy, um, but they were an entire cast, um, an entire social and cultural level of person. And they were devoted to studying the stars, studying the body, studying dreams and visions, which we see all throughout the Old Testament. This was not unique to them. But they were kind of trusted because their accuracy was on point a lot of the time. And one of the things that they were legitimately known for was the calling out and recognition of new kingships. So this is something that people understood the Magi to do. They appear in other writings of the time, so other like historical pieces that were written, um, accounts that were written around the same time. The Magi also come up. Um, the word we use for magic comes from the same word that we use for Magi. They truly were scholars and students um, of both spiritual and intellectual things in equal measure. We have lost that so much in the West. And I think that it's good for us to be reminded that even back then, there was a recognition that studying these, these areas in tandem brought a different kind of knowledge than studying them separately. They would have studied holy writings of any known culture of the time. They saw the star that hearkened to the coming of a new king. So based on their understanding of astrology at the time, we're not talking like what's your daily horoscope. Like they, they really did study the stars and in as much as science was understood at the time, it was a science. Um, and they did have some accuracy attached to the things that they read in the stars. So they saw a star that hearkened the coming of a new king. So they traveled from where they were to Jerusalem, talked to Herod, which we'll get into in a minute, and then the scripture tells us they saw a star moving like a spotlight, guiding them to where they needed to be. Now, Bethlehem is only about a 10-mile distance from where they were in Jerusalem at Herod's palace. How much can a star move, right? We don't know what happened. There are lots of theories out there about, well, this planet and this planet were doing this at that time from what we can understand. Nothing fully accounts for everything that we're told was happening in the skies at this time. Could just be good old-fashioned supernatural event. It could be that we just don't know what happened yet. This is the only account we have. As far as we know, a star somehow led them from Herod's palace to the literal house that this kid was staying in. Did they stop and ask for directions? Maybe. It doesn't make it any less <laughs> powerful. <laughs> they got to Bethlehem and were like, hey, where's the baby? Um, you know, it's entirely possible that somebody could have directed them there. So, what's that? Casey's. <laughs> um, as far as the timing and location, so this would have been probably a couple years after Jesus was born. So we know from the narrative story that they left from Nazareth, which was up north, when this census got called. And everybody had to go to the hometown that their family was from. Me, it would be Pekin. Um, so they had to travel to where their family was and register for the census. So all of the pictures of Mary pregnant on a donkey with Joseph walking along, they're going to Bethlehem. 
What we don't realize is that they didn't leave. <laughs> they stayed in Bethlehem until this story. Um, Joseph was a carpenter. He could do that trade anywhere. The reality is there was most likely a lot of gossip and shame waiting for them in Nazareth because it was known that Mary was pregnant before they were married. So they might have just thought, start fresh. <laughs> we're already here. We just got married. We're just going to stay here. We'll build a life. It'll be fine. So they have a house in Bethlehem. He, probably, he had family there. That's the whole reason they were there. So it would have been an easy transition. But we don't think about all the time the fact that for, for the first two years Jesus lived right next to Jerusalem. They took him to the temple at eight days like they were supposed to, but, but they stayed where they were for a, a season. Herod, um, sorry, my attention span is a little bit broken today. Um, Herod was Herod the Great. Um, how many of you historians in the room know much about Herod the Great specifically? Bad dude, crazy dude, um, killed his kids, his wife, his mother-in-law, and some other people, all because he was eaten up with paranoia that they were going to try to take the kingdom. They might have, but he, he was known for his temper, for his very quick and rash um, and violent responses to things. This was his rep He was also not Jewish, um, so he was appointed by Rome, he is an outsider who was brought in to lead the people because they were noisy and constantly rebelling, so there needed to be a Roman presence. Um, so he doesn't have the same faith history. He doesn't have any of the same like religious obligations or knowledge even. Um, he was also known for his splendor. Um, he really liked pretty things. He was responsible for rebuilding the temple. Um, that is something that, that we have to give him um, from our understanding is that it was very beautiful and very opulent, and he was the one responsible for rebuilding it. And then the last characters we want to talk about are the chief priests and scribes that he calls in. Um, so the Magi come to him, and they're like, hey, we're here to celebrate because there's a new king. And he's like, I'm sorry, who am I killing now? And so he calls the people who actually know the scriptures. Um, the chief priests were Sadducees. They were the ones who were very entrenched in the political and spiritual leadership of the day. The temple priests, which, you know, in Leviticus sound very much like they're serving the people. In Jesus' day, they're the ones running the corporate money machine that was the temple that pissed Jesus off so much. So these are the folks running and profiting off of that specifically off of the, the gifts of the people, the sacrifices that the, the worshipers bring, capitalizing on it. And then the scribes were basically like the legal experts of the day. Um, so whether it was religious documents or legal documents, they were the ones who had the best understanding of, of all of the meticulousness that, that comes with history and legality. So he draws them in and he's like, okay, so these guys just told me this dude was born. I'm not going to tell them this, but I'm going to ask these guys, where do you think he would be? And they look at the scriptures, and they have this general idea that Bethlehem is where the Messiah would show up. So he lets them know, and then he tells the Magi, hey, when you find him, let me know, because I want to go and worship him too. And so they, not knowing any different, go about their way. Um, they, they go the last 10 miles to find Jesus. They present their offerings um, that did represent the worship of a deity 
um, understanding that this wasn't just a man, honoring of a king, understanding that he wasn't just a peasant, um, and to prepare him for his death, understanding that his mission was not going to end well in terms of, of his life ending in violence. So there is significance to those gifts. Um, one question that should come to mind is that when the chief priests and the scribes found out that this baby had been born, why weren't they more curious or excited or happy that their Messiah might have actually shown up? Most likely the reason that all of Jerusalem feared, along with Herod, was because of his reputation for violence. They didn't know how he was going to react if he was being threatened again in this way. And as we know, that fear was justified because what happens after this is that he orders the death of every child under, every male child under two. So they were right to be afraid. Um, but that's the reason that they weren't more excited about the fact that this Messiah had come. The Sadducees didn't even believe in a resurrection. Um, they were much more political than they were spiritual at this point in their understanding of, of theology and leadership. So that is a lot. I want to open it up. Before we get into, I, I've got three lessons we can pull from, from the Magi that I think are applicable for us today. But what are your thoughts after that data dump? Any, any new thoughts, questions, anything make you mad or worried? Yeah. Um, were the wise men from the same country? They would have been from the same region, but they, they could have been from other areas and came together if they were all seeing the same things in the stars. All right. I just didn't want to leave you with any unsettled angst after all that. Um, to me, the, the story of the Magi is a story of revelation, of faith. They had no assurance that when they showed up after traveling all this way that they were going to find the baby that they were looking for. Like, we have to keep that in mind, too. This is a lot of labor and preparation with no guarantee on the other end of it. That's how much faith they put in what they were seeing in the sky. Um, theirs is a story of faithfulness, of the giving of gifts worthy of who we believe Jesus to be. So participation and attention is one of the first lessons I think we take. The Magi didn't just study the various scriptures and learn the science behind reading the stars. They didn't just recognize what the signs were of the coming king. They packed, they planned, they arranged, they, they chose intentional gifts. They traveled the long desert way to a city where they didn't even know for sure if they would find who or what they were looking for. They did this with no assurance, just their knowledge, their faith, and their desire to participate in what was happening in the world. They also paid attention to Herod, the people's responses, and the dream that came to them, and acted accordingly by not going back through Jerusalem. Scott Erickson in Honest Advent says that God has embedded patterns within us and those same patterns into the material world so that we would recognize the familiarity. When we talk about things like how tree roots look like hair and how we have the same bone structures in our hands, I think that dolphins have in their fins, um, we start to see these patterns. That, that fact could be wrong. It could be a different animal or body part, but I feel like that's right. Um, 
but we have these patterns, right? We see the leaves starting to, to get color and die in the fall, reminds us of the need for us to release and let go. As we come into the longest night, we recognize that there is a place to sit in the dark and allow it to be its own thing, even as we look for the returning of the light. There are patterns that we, we have been given in the world around us that echo the things that happen within. We're given parables of birth and flowers to teach us spiritual truths. We're moved inexplicably by music and art and story that resonates deep within us. Jesus tells us that by meeting the needs of those around us, the real, felt, practical, and emotional needs, we are participating in the divine love, in the flow of divine love toward that person. Many of you know, uh, my mom passed away a few weeks ago. We had a complicated relationship, and we were not close at all. And so it's, it's a weird grief, is what I've been saying. Um, but it's a guttural, primal kind of grief that isn't balanced by warm memories or longing. The night she passed, I was a wreck, ugly crying through the hospital halls and elevators, desperate to get to the privacy of my car. As I sat in the parking deck trying to calm myself enough to drive, I turned on the ignition and heard the very last syllable from the DJ before the next song started. It was Let Her Go by one of my very, very most loved musicians. The first few lines of this song are, well, you only need the light when it's burning low. Only miss the sun when it starts to snow. Only know you love her when you let her go. Only know you've been high when you're feeling low. Only hate the road when you're missing home. Only know you love her when you let her go. I've heard this song a million times as I sat there recognizing its, its power in that moment. All of the broken expectations of the last 44 years, all of the striving, the hope deferred, the wishing for something different, all just kind of broke apart as I sat there listening to the wisdom of this musician. And in so many ways, as my breathing slowed, a calm settled over me, and there was a genuine kind of release that I was able to participate in, in that moment. It didn't end the grief, it didn't end anything, but there was a definite sense of, for the first time in 44 years. I'm gonna encourage you to look for the manifestations of Christ in your life. Where are the revelations of the divine? And where are you looking for them? What do you need to believe you will receive from God? We talk about looking for God in each other, in the natural world, in beauty, and in art, and in the least of these. I want to encourage you, whether it's an observational uh, meditation practice, which I can tell you more about if you don't know what that is, whether it's a gratitude journal, a daily examine, or something else, find a way this year to pay more attention, because I know more than anything that divine is all around and waiting to engage with us sending invitations out in every way the divine possibly can. And it's not that we're doing anything wrong when we miss them. It's just an invitation to look in new ways, to see where the divine might be reaching out to connect with you and to speak with you. The next two are shorter, I promise. Um, the second, uh, second lesson would be prayer and faith. The Magi added their movement, their faith, their gifts, their honoring to the incarnation and revelation of God into the world through Jesus when he was born. 
And it almost feels too simple, like they had a childlike faith. Um, that's romantic, but likely this faith was forged in fires of looking and disappointment, getting it wrong, being pleasantly surprised, just like all of our faiths. I have believed to the core of my soul that God has communicated things to me that never came to, to fruition. Part of that's coming from the charismatic church, but nonetheless, there's a lot of that. There are also things I never thought to pray for that I have been gifted throughout my life. I can see where I've been saved from things I didn't know to watch out for, and I've been allowed to run headfirst into traffic. There is no rhyme or reason that I can see, but there is a participation in my prayer that I'm still invited into. And I know a lot of us struggle with the idea of prayer, especially if you're in a deconstructive phase or post-deconstruction and just haven't figured out how to reintegrate that piece. My humble definition of love these days, I'm sorry, of prayer these days, is that it's adding whatever trickles or floods of faith I'm currently experiencing to the flowing torrents of divine love that I know is already pouring out toward people and situations that are longing for divine intervention. I believe that for every single person in this room, there is an absolute torrent of divine love coming at you all of the time. If I pray for you, I'm basically just adding whatever faith I have right now. It can be a drop, it could be a flood, but I am adding it to the flow of love already coming toward you asking that God's will be done in the best and most beautiful ways possible. Whatever the kingdom looks like in your situation, in your body, in your relationship, in your soul, I just ask for that. I don't have to name it. I can. If I want specific things for you, I can add those things. But my prayer isn't dependent on what manifests. My prayer is dependent on my faith that there is already such a flow of love coming toward you that all I can do is participate in that. Maybe think about prayer that way this year and see if it changes anything. The last is the giving of gifts. I saw a lot of memes this year especially that cracked me up. The wise men came, but then the wiser women came and they had diapers, bottles, and wipes, right? It's, it's funny, um, but as we've already talked about, these were appropriate gifts for the moment because they weren't there to help ease Mary's weariness. Um, they were there to honor a king, honor a deity, and honor a death. And those were the gifts that they brought. When we think of the gifts that we have to offer God, Imago, the world, we usually think in terms of skill sets and resources, which is appropriate. But what about your anger? What about your hurt? Your time or your money? Your wisdom? your experiences, your want to want to believe, because you don't want to believe, but you want to want to believe. What about your tears and your laughter, your body, your heart, and your mind, your hopelessness? These are all gifts worthy of being given. Your disappointment is a gift worth giving. Your fear is a gift worth giving. Your joy is a gift worth giving. Please know, if you don't walk out of here knowing anything else today, everything in you is a gift worth giving to the divine. 
and it will be honored. And I truly believe, even if not in this lifetime, it will be redeemed. Because our God, if he is nothing else, is a redeemer. So know that there is nothing that you can't bring through that door. There is nothing you can't bring to that cross. There is nothing you can't bring to that prayer. Even if it is a guttural scream into the void or the whimper of somebody who just doesn't even have it in them to scream. Or it's your numbness because things just keep going the way they've been going and you can't stir up an emotion to save your life. Or even if it's you're elated because everything is amazing and you want to make the most of the time you have to celebrate because we all know that balance is real and we will have great seasons and we will have not so great seasons and you want to suck the, the marrow out of the bone of this particular season. All of it is appropriate and all of it is worth being brought. Communion is a place where we accept the gifts that were given by Christ through his death and his resurrection. Grace, mercy, forgiveness, cleansing, community, connection, oneness, reconciliation, gathering. These are the gifts that are represented by the table. These are the gifts that we remember Christ gave. And so, Amago, I just want to ask what signs might be around you right now? If you look a little more closely, where might the divine be breaking through? Are you being invited to set down your burdens and rest within the arms of God for a reason? Are you being invited to get up, get moving, to participate in your life in a newer, deeper way? Is God in the snow, in the tears, in the hug, or in the song that came on the radio? 